Chapter Eighteen of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Eighteen. I wandered over this deserted mansion in a considerable degree at random. Effluvia of a pestilential nature assailed me from every corner. In the front room of the second story, I imagined that I discovered vestiges of that catastrophe which the past night had produced. The bed appeared as if someone had recently been dragged from it. The sheets were tinged with yellow, and with that substance which is said to be characteristic of this disease, the gangrenous or black vomit. The floor exhibited similar stains. There are many who will regard my conduct as the last refinement of temerity or of heroism. Nothing, indeed, more perplexes me than a review of my own conduct. Not, indeed, that death is an object always to be dreaded, or that my motive did not justify my actions, but of all dangers those allied to pestilence, by being mysterious and unseen, are the most formidable. To disarm them of their terrors requires the longest familiarity. Nurses and physicians soonest become intrepid or indifferent, but the rest of mankind recoil from the scene with unconquerable loathing. I was sustained not by confidence of safety and a belief of exemption from this malady, or by the influence of habit, which inures us all to that is detestable or perilous, but by a belief that this was as eligible an avenue to death as any other, and that life is a trivial sacrifice in the cause of duty. I passed from one room to the other. A portmanteau, marked with the initials of Wallace's name, at length attracted my notice. From this circumstance I inferred that this apartment had been occupied by him. The room was neatly arranged, and appeared as if no one had lately used it. There were trunks and drawers. That which I have mentioned was the only one that bore marks of Wallace's ownership. This I lifted in my arms with a view to remove it to Medlicote's house. At that moment methought I heard a footstep slowly and lingeringly ascending the stair. I was disconcerted at this incident. The footstep had in it a ghost-like solemnity and tardiness. This phantom vanished in a moment, and yielded place to more humble conjectures. A human being approached whose office and commission were inscrutable. That we were strangers to each other was easily imagined, but how would my appearance in this remote chamber, and loaded with another's property, be interpreted? Did he enter the house after me, or was he the tenant of some chamber hitherto unvisited, whom my entrance had awakened from his trance, and called from his couch? In the confusion of my mind I still held my burden uplifted. To have placed it on the floor and encountered this visitant, without this equivocal token about me, was the obvious proceeding. Indeed, time only could decide whether these footsteps tended to this or to some other apartment. My doubts were quickly dispelled. The door opened, and a figure glided in. The portmanteau dropped from my arms, and my heart's blood was chilled. If an apparition of the dead were possible, and that possibility I could not deny, this was such an apparition. A hue, yellowish and livid, bones uncovered with flesh, eyes, ghastly, 
hollow, woe-begone, and fixed in an agony of wonder upon me, and locks, matted and negligent, constituted the image which I now beheld. My belief of somewhat preternatural in this appearance was confirmed by recollection of resemblances between these features and those of one who was dead. In this shape and visage, shadowy and death-like as they were, the lineaments of Wallace, of him who had misled my rustic simplicity on my first visit to this city, and whose death I had conceived to be incontestably ascertained, were forcibly recognized. This recognition, which at first alarmed my superstition, speedily led to more rational inferences. Wallace had been dragged to the hospital. Nothing was less to be suspected than that he would return alive from that hideous receptacle, but this was by no means impossible. The figure that stood before me had just risen from the bed of sickness and from the brink of the grave. The crisis of his malady had passed, and he was once more entitled to be ranked among the living. This event, and the consequences which my imagination connected with it, filled me with the liveliest joy. I thought not of his ignorance of the causes of my satisfaction, of the doubts to which the circumstances of our interview would give birth, respecting the integrity of my purpose. I forgot the artifices by which I had formerly been betrayed, and the embarrassments which a meeting with the victim of his artifices would excite in him. I thought only of the happiness which his recovery would confer upon his uncle and his cousins. I advanced towards him with an air of congratulation, and offered him my hand. He shrunk back and exclaimed in a feeble voice, "'Who are you? What business have you here?' "'I am the friend of Wallace, if he will allow me to be so.' I am a messenger from your uncle and cousins at Malverton. I came to know the cause of your silence and to afford you any assistance in my power. He continued to regard me with an air of suspicion and doubt. These I endeavored to remove by explaining the motives that led me hither. It was with difficulty that he seemed to credit my representations. When thoroughly convinced of the truth of my assertions, he inquired with great anxiety and tenderness concerning his relations, and expressed his hope that they were ignorant of what had befallen him. I could not encourage his hopes. I regretted my own precipitation in adopting the belief of his death. This belief had been uttered with confidence, and without stating my reasons for embracing it, to Mr. Hadwin. These tidings would be borne to his daughters, and their grief would be exasperated to a deplorable and perhaps to a fatal degree. There was but one method of repairing or eluding this mischief. Intelligence ought to be conveyed to them of his recovery, but where was the messenger to be found? No one's attention could be found disengaged from his own concerns. Those who were able or willing to leave the city had sufficient motives for departure, in relation to themselves. If vehicle or horse were procurable for money, ought it not to be secured for the use of Wallace himself, whose health required the easiest and speediest conveyance from this theatre of death? My companion was powerless in mind as in limbs. He seemed unable to consult upon the means of escaping from the inconveniences by which he was surrounded. As soon as sufficient strength was regained, he had left the hospital. To repair to Malverton was the measure which prudence obviously dictated, 
but he was hopeless of effecting it. The city was close at hand, this was his usual home, and hither his tottering and almost involuntary steps conducted him. He listened to my representations and counsels and acknowledged their propriety. He put himself under my protection and guidance, and promised to conform implicitly to my directions. His strength had sufficed to bring him thus far, but was now utterly exhausted. The task of searching for a carriage and horse devolved upon me. In effecting this purpose, I was obliged to rely upon my own ingenuity and diligence. Wallace, though so long a resident in the city, knew not to whom I could apply, or by whom carriages were let to hire. My own reflections taught me that this accommodation was most likely to be furnished by innkeepers, or that some of those might at least inform me of the best measures to be taken. I resolved to set out immediately on this search. Meanwhile Wallace was persuaded to take refuge in Medlicote's apartments, and to make, by the assistance of Austin, the necessary preparation for his journey. The morning had now advanced. The rays of a sultry sun had a sickening and enfeebling influence beyond any which I had ever experienced. The drought of unusual duration had bereft the air and earth of every particle of moisture. The element which I breathed appeared to have stagnated into noxiousness and putrefaction. I was astonished at observing the enormous diminution of my strength. My brows were heavy, my intellects benumbed, my sinews enfeebled, and my sensations universally unquiet. These prognostics were easily interpreted. What I chiefly dreaded was that they would disable me from executing the task which I had undertaken. I summoned up all my resolution and cherished a disdain of yielding to this ignoble destiny. I reflected that the source of all energy and even of life is seated in thought, that nothing is arduous to human efforts, that the external frame will seldom languish while actuated by an unconquerable soul. I fought against my dreary feelings which pulled me to the earth. I quickened my pace raised my drooping eyelids, and hummed a cheerful and favorite air. For all that I accomplished during this day, I believe myself indebted to the strenuousness and ardor of my resolutions. I went from one tavern to another. One was deserted, in another the people were sick, and their attendants refused to hearken to my inquiries or offers. At a third their horses were engaged." I was determined to prosecute my search as long as an inn or livery stable remained unexamined, and my strength would permit. To detail the events of this expedition, the arguments and supplications which I used to overcome the dictates of avarice and fear, the fluctuation of my hopes and my incessant disappointments would be useless. Having exhausted all my expedients ineffectually, I was compelled to turn my weary steps once more to Medlicote's lodgings. My meditations were deeply engaged by the present circumstances of my situation. Since the means which were first suggested were impracticable, I endeavored to investigate the others. Wallace's debility made it impossible for him to perform this journey on foot, but would not his strength and his resolution suffice to carry him beyond Schuylkill? A carriage or horse, though not to be obtained in the city, 
could without difficulty be procured in the country. Every farmer had beasts for burden and draught. One of these might be hired at no immoderate expense for half a day. This project appeared so practicable and so specious that I deeply regretted the time and the efforts which had already been so fruitlessly expended. If my project, however, had been mischievous, to review it with regret was only to prolong and to multiply its mischiefs. I trusted that time and strength would not be wanting to the execution of this new design. On entering Medlicote's house, my looks, which, in spite of my languors, were sprightly and confident, flattered Wallace with the belief that my exertions had succeeded. When acquainted with their failure, he sunk as quickly into hopelessness. My new expedient was heard by him with no marks of satisfaction. It was impossible, he said, to move from this spot by his own strength. All his powers were exhausted by his walk from Bush Hill. I endeavored, by arguments and railleries, to revive his courage. The pure air of the country would exhilarate him into new life. He might stop at every fifty yards and rest upon the green sod. If overtaken by the night, we would procure a lodging by address and importunity, but if every door should be shut against us, we should at least enjoy the shelter of some barn, and might diet wholesomely upon the new-laid eggs that we should find there. The worst treatment we could meet with was better than continuance in the city. These remonstrances had some influence, and he at length consented to put his ability to the test. First, however, it was necessary to invigorate himself by a few hours' rest. To this, though with infinite reluctance, I consented. This interval allowed him to reflect upon the past and to inquire into the fate of Thetford and his family. The intelligence which Medlicote had enabled me to afford him was heard with more satisfaction than regret. The ingratitude and cruelty with which he had been treated seemed to have extinguished every sentiment but hatred and vengeance. I was willing to profit by this interval to know more of Thetford than I already possessed. I inquired why Wallace had so perversely neglected the advice of his uncle and cousin, and persisted to brave so many dangers when flight was so easy. "'I cannot justify my conduct,' answered he. It was in the highest degree thoughtless and perverse. I was confident and unconcerned as long as our neighborhood was free from disease, and as long as I forbore any communication with the sick. Yet I should have withdrawn to Malverton merely to gratify my friends if Thetford had not used the most powerful arguments to detain me. He labored to extenuate the danger. "'Why not stay?' said he, "'as long as I and my family stay. "'Do you think that we would linger here if the danger were imminent? "'As soon as it becomes so, we will fly. "'You know that we have a country house prepared for our reception. "'When we go, you shall accompany us. "'Your services at this time are indispensable to my affairs. "'If you will not desert me, your salary next year shall be double, "'and that will enable you to marry your cousin immediately.' Nothing is more improbable than that any of us should be sick. But, if this should happen to you, I plight my honor that you shall be carefully and faithfully attended. These assurances were solemn and generous. 
to make Susan Hadwin my wife was the scope of all my wishes and labors. By staying I should hasten this desirable event and incur little hazard. By going I should alienate the affections of Thetford, by whom it is but justice to acknowledge that I had hitherto been treated with unexampled generosity and kindness, and blast all the schemes I had formed for rising into wealth. My resolution was by no means steadfast. As often as a letter from Malverton arrived, I felt myself disposed to hasten away. But this inclination was combated by new arguments and new entreaties of Thetford. In this state of suspense the girl by whom Mrs. Thetford's infant was nursed fell sick. She was an excellent creature, and merited better treatment than she received. Like me, she resisted the persuasions of her friends, but her motives for remaining were disinterested and heroic. No sooner did her indisposition appear than she was hurried to the hospital. I saw that no reliance could be placed on the assurances of Thetford. Every consideration gave way to his fear of death. After the girl's departure, though he knew that she was led by his means to execution, yet he consoled himself by repeating and believing her assertions that her disease was not the fever. I was now greatly alarmed for my own safety. I was determined to encounter his anger and repel his persuasions, and to depart with the market-man next morning. That night, however, I was seized with the violent fever. I knew in what manner patients were treated at the hospital, and removal thither was to the last degree abhorred. The morning arrived and my situation was discovered. At the first intimation, Thetford rushed out of the house and refused to re-enter it till I was removed. I knew not my fate till three ruffians made their appearance at my bedside and communicated their commission. I called on the name of Thetford and his wife. I entreated a moment's delay till I had seen these persons, and endeavored to procure a respite from my sentence. They were deaf to my entreaties, and prepared to execute their office by force. I was delirious with rage and terror. I heaped the bitterest execrations on my murderer, and by turns invoked the compassion of and poured a torrent of reproaches on the wretches whom he had selected for his ministers. My struggles and outcries were vain. I have no perfect recollection of what passed till my arrival at the hospital. My passions combined with my disease to make me frantic and wild. In a state like mine the slightest motion could not be endured without agony. What then must I have felt, scorched and dazzled by the sun, sustained by hard boards, and borne for miles over a rugged pavement? I cannot make you comprehend the anguish of my feelings. To be disjointed and torn piecemeal by the rack was a torment inexpressibly inferior to this. Nothing excites my wonder but that I did not expire before the cart had moved three paces. I knew not how or by whom I was moved from this vehicle. Insensibility came at length to my relief. After a time I opened my eyes, and slowly gained some knowledge of my situation. 
I lay upon a mattress whose condition proved that a half-decayed corpse had recently been dragged from it. The room was large, but it was covered with beds like my own. Between each there was scarcely the interval of three feet. Each sustained a wretch whose groans and distortions bespoke the desperateness of his condition. The atmosphere was loaded by mortal stenches. A vapor, suffocating and malignant, scarcely allowed me to breathe. No suitable receptacle was provided for the evacuations produced by medicine or disease. My nearest neighbor was struggling with death, and my bed, casually extended, was moist with the detestable matter which had flowed from his stomach. You will scarcely believe that, in this scene of horrors, the sound of laughter should be overheard. While the upper rooms of this building are filled with the sick and the dying, the lower apartments are the scene of carousals and mirth. The wretches who are hired at enormous wages to tend the sick and convey away the dead neglect their duty and consume the cordials which are provided for the patients in debauchery and riot. A female visage, bloated with malignity and drunkenness, occasionally looked in. Dying eyes were cast upon her, invoking the boon, perhaps, of a drop of cold water, or her assistance to change a posture which compelled him to behold the ghastly writhings or deathful smile of his neighbor. The visitant had left the banquet for a moment, only to see who was dead. If she entered the room, blinking eyes and reeling steps showed her to be totally unqualified for ministering the aid that was needed. Presently she disappeared, and others ascended the staircase. A coffin was deposited at the door. The wretch, whose heart still quivered, was seized by rude hands and dragged along the floor into the passage. Oh, how poor are the conceptions which are formed by the fortunate few of the sufferings to which millions of their fellow-beings are condemned! This misery was more frightful, because it was seen to flow from the depravity of the attendants. My own eyes only would make me credit the existence of wickedness so enormous— no wonder that to die in garrets and cellars and stables, unvisited and unknown, had by so many been preferred to being brought hither. A physician cast an eye upon my state. He gave some directions to the person who attended him. I did not comprehend them. They were never executed by the nurses, and if the attempt had been made, I should probably have refused to receive what was offered. Recovery was equally beyond my expectations and my wishes. The scene which was hourly displayed before me, the entrance of the sick, most of whom perished in a few hours, and their departure to the graves prepared for them, reminded me of the fate to which I also was reserved. Three days passed away, in which every hour was expected to be the last— that, amidst an atmosphere so contagious and deadly, amidst causes of destruction hourly accumulating, 
I should yet survive, appears to me nothing less than miraculous. That of so many conducted to this house, the only one who passed out of it alive should be myself, almost surpasses my belief. Some inexplicable principle rendered harmless those potent enemies of human life. My fever subsided and vanished. My strength was revived, and the first use that I made of my limbs was to bear me far from the contemplation and sufferance of those evils. End of chapter 18